you'll see in verse 33, 4, and 5, that they saw that Jesus was already dead, so they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers, remarkably, pierced his side with a spear, and blood and water came out. Let me just read and to you what John said about this in his old age. You don't need to turn to this. This is from 1 John 5. Who is he that overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, and the Spirit is truth. There are three that bear witness in heaven. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. And these three agree as one. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. We saw there, following on from this morning, that Jesus cried out, it is finished, and that is a, a great declaration from Christ. Um, in the Greek language, it is one word that means to be utterly completed, finished, and accomplished. Nothing more to do. It's actually the last word of Psalm 22. This morning, in Jesus' cry, we saw the first sentence of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you look at that long psalm, it says that they'll say of God, He has accomplished it. And that word, tetelestai, is the exact word that Jesus cries out on the cross. We would say in English, finished. Finished. Everything pregnant in the world and in the covenant of grace since the Garden of Eden was built, all the souls that have been born and all of God's redemptive acts. That's what's amazing about God. He does so many things, but it all comes down to one person and one event. It's like a black hole. It's, it's like one of these stars that collapses in on itself, that has more mass in it than all the rest of the matter in the solar system. You can pack so much into one place. And I said this morning that the creation is used to teach by God. And I, I sometimes wonder if even the, the way God has built the universe ha has almost parables in it. That God, when a star collapses in on itself and it pulls all the light and mass in on itself, you can pack so much of what should be impossible to pack in there into a very small space. That's what happened at the cross. The, all of our sin was dealt with in that one place, at that one point. And he could say of it all, it is now finished. Because of this one action, by this one person who is our Savior. And when it is finished, the last thing he has to do is present his soul to the Father. Into your hands I present my spirit. It's finished. I lived a perfect life. I did not sin in my death. I paid the full penalty of sin. I came out of the darkness. And I call you Father again. And I present this soul to you. So, well, he doesn't present his soul. He presents himself. He is the soul. He presents himself 
to God. And he going there in his spirit and appearing before God, entering the immediate presence of the Father, all that's represented in his life and death, that perfect offering there before God, it's upon that that our entire salvation hangs. And all the grace in your life right now, it's all on the basis of that. But something remarkable happens that helps us understand what comes from the cross. We saw Jesus doing something very objective this morning, that he achieved this, that he did this, that he paid the penalty, he received the wrath. He did all of that without us, but it's not impersonal because he did it for us. And once he's achieved it, there are massive blessings and ramifications that come from that cross that affect us even now. And it's mentioned in John's Gospel in the passage uh, that we read. Um, That's why John records it the way he does. And what happens is a remarkable kind of contradiction. It usually took people very long to die on the cross. It was designed to torture someone that way, the weight and the suffocation of being on the cross. But remarkably, Jesus dies quite quickly. And you'll remember, one of the Gospels says that Pilate was astonished. He didn't believe he was dead. Pilate was astonished that he was very impressed with Christ when he questioned him. He could tell that Christ was intelligent, that he wasn't a fool, and he was intimidated by Christ. And Christ came out of each of those interactions with Pilate on on top. Pilate felt kind of twisted inside out every time he tried to question Jesus. And then he hears that this person he'd been so impressed with, who he wanted to let go, he died very quickly. And he's, he's afraid of this. His wife had a dream and said, I've nothing to do with this man. Then he hears, he's dead before these two common criminals are. So they break the legs of the criminals so that they'll die quickly. Because they're not dying. And remarkably, the king of glory himself has died. And we know why he's died. It's because of everything we said this morning. That's why he has died. He wasn't just hanging on a cross. He was doing so much more than that. And he gave up his spirit after carrying all of that weight. But a remarkable providence happens. Even though they thought he was already dead, and they decided not to break the legs because it wasn't necessary, one of the soldiers wanted to make sure. And he just took his spear from underneath the cross and thrust it up into Christ's body, up through, under the ribcage, into where his vital organs were, to make sure he was dead. That's a remarkable prophecy, because uh, an event based on prophecy, because we're told in the Old Testament that he will be pierced. He will be pierced, but Psalm 34 says, not one of his bones shall be broken. So, he avoid, after being beaten, scourged, his shoulders probably dislocated when they nailed him to the cross and stretched him. All my bones are out of joint, Psalm 22 says. And a spear being thrust right into his ribcage, remarkably, not even one of his ribs was broken. The Son of God can have his body uh, lacerated and, uh, and tortured, 
and his soul bear the weight of sin. But God will not have people break the bones of Christ. That is a, a picture of his strength and his resolve. That though he's being punished so severely, he remains intact. His bones aren't broken. But what happens is that when they thrust the spear into his side, blood and water uh, come out. One of the soldiers pierced his side, John 19.34, with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. Now there may be medical reasons to do with this, because he had died, his blood would have begun to clot, and his heart wasn't beating, his blood wasn't moving, there, there was fluid in his lungs from the suffocation, and I don't want to get too technical, but we're dealing with the Bible, this is from the Bible, blood and water came out, and there are, for, for a long time, doctors who have studied the Bible believe that there was a, a sack of fluid around his heart almost and that maybe the spear pierced there and that the, the, the fluid was just let out of the wound and you had blood that had, that had clotted and you had the water or the fluids from the blood separated from the, the main part of the blood itself now that may be true but that's not what we're looking at uh, tonight, it's what it represents what, why did it happen and John is amazed. This is one of the most unique comments in any of the Gospels. He stops his Gospel because of it. He doesn't just tell us this happened, then this happened, then this happened. He stops in verse 35 and said, He who saw this has testified. In other words, himself. And his testimony is true, and he knows he's telling the truth, so that you may believe these things were done, that the Scripture may be fulfilled they shall look on him whom they pierced. So John knows. It was, to John it was unusual. He didn't just see his friend wounded and say that looked awful. John thought that this was one of those things that happened around the cross that was unusual and carried some kind of message or significance in it. And he stops and he says, I testify that this happened. I'm not being symbolic. This happened for a reason, and it represents something very real. They shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, what does it represent? Well, the Bible tells us what the blood and water represent throughout the Bible. And this is, this is why John knows this. Um, even in the passage we read that's quoted here, Zechariah 12 and 13, that John quotes, when it says that he was pierced, it says that in that day a fountain shall be opened for sin and uncleanness, for sin and impurity. And when John writes his letter at the end of his life, he's, he brings this up again. When he's telling the people he's writing to that they need their sins forgiven, they need to come out of the world, they need to be sons of God, that they need to oppose the Antichrists, that they need to live by the word of God and the spirit of God and continually have their sins forgiven. And he says, for it's because of the, the water and the blood and the spirit. And these three agree. So it's in his mind. 
And it all comes from this event. This is from the rest of the Bible. Zechariah said it, but it's in the rest of the Bible. You take the, the instructions for building the tabernacle and temple, which are very important for a, a Christian to understand. And they're not very well under, understood today. The, the point is that we're not allowed near God by nature. We're not allowed near Him. People think that, that God is a, a benign person, that you can just wander in and see Him. You can't. He takes in very seriously, and you're not allowed in His presence. And when He gave the tabernacle as a picture of Christ and His work, there were a series of stages you had to go through if you wanted to know God at all. And you needed the priesthood to go inside for you. And what did they have to do before they went inside? At the door of the temple, at the very door of the presence of God, there was an altar where all the sacrifices were made. A bronze altar on your right hand side, and on your left hand side, there was a large bronze laver filled with water. And these were increased when Solomon built his temple. The laver was huge. It, it was maybe about the, the, the size of the pew area there. There was a huge laver um, in the courtyard of Solomon's temple that was filled with millions of gallons of, of water. The point there is that if you want to be right with God, the God who made you, you, you need a sacrifice on the altar and you need to wash in the basin. You need the blood and the water. You need an atonement, a sacrifice and blood that will legally release you from the guilt of sin. But you also need then to wash so that you're, you're not contaminated by sin. One's legal and one's to do with what we are. So I, I give you a quick example. If God had sent Christ to die on the cross, as we saw this morning, and he paid the penalty for sin so that his people would be legally justified, but he had not sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to cleanse us, that would not work. If you, you can write down a legal document saying these people are forgiven, but you can't receive them into the eternal kingdom if they're coming in with all their sin and the filth of their hearts. So God always works this way. He has to put it legally right as a judge, but then he actually has to clean uh, the person. It's kind of like um, uh, taking someone out of prison that you get a document, perhaps, that makes them, that officially says they're set free. But then you might give them money to get some new clothes and for them to wash and to get a haircut and these things too. Both, both are required if the person is going to function. And that's a very low um, metaphor for what's going on here. God doesn't just sign a document and then leave us in our nature. And he doesn't send the Holy Spirit uh, into our soul to try and fix us while leaving us legally still guilty. So there is the need for the blood and the water. There is the guilt of sin and then there is the contamination of sin. And um, that's throughout the Bible. We sang Psalm 51. David, read that when you go home. 
and think of these two things, legal and contamination. He says, blot out my sins and my iniquities. Legal. Wash thou me, and I shall be whiter than the snow. Do thou with hyssop sprinkle me. That's blood. You put the blood on the hyssop and you sprinkle. Do thou with hyssop sprinkle me, I shall be cleansed so. Yes, wash thou me, and then I shall be whiter than the snow. You need the Jew Um, and Christ gives the two that's what this event represents a fountain open for sin legally and uncleanness and we desperately needed and still need both and here is this fountain bursting forth from the dead Christ Even when he's dead, physically, life is coming out of him. When we die, we're finished and we decay. He didn't decay. Even when he's hanging there dead and they try and pierce him, forgiveness and sanctification and blessing come out of him, even from his physical body. It's an amazing thing. So we need the blood and the water. Let me just say a few things about both of these, the blood and the water. When we uh, are lost and when the gospel comes to us and we need to come to Christ, we need to come by the blood. And we saw that sacrifice this morning. It was a blood sacrifice. His blood was spilled in the courtyard of the the Roman garrison and his blood was spilled on the pathway to Calvary and his blood was spilled at Calvary and here in John's Gospel his blood was spilled for the last time we need that blood because we need to be redeemed and he needs to pay the price that we saw this morning that needs paid And whenever the Bible speaks about that glorious action and transaction of him paying that, it always speaks about it in terms of his blood. Ephesians 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Hebrews says, Without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. The end of Hebrews says, May he sanctify you completely. And he says, By the blood of the everlasting covenant. The blood that speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood. But Jesus' blood is powerful, alive, active, and achieves things. We need the blood. We need it applied to us. That is how we become Christians. The blood is applied to us, just like they did in the temple, to cleanse something, an altar, or a bowl, or a priest, they sprinkled blood upon it. At Sinai, Moses sprinkled blood on the book of the law. When when he bound that law to the Israeli people, he then took blood from a sacrifice and he sprinkled it on their, their Bible. The blood marks something, the blood marks it out the the blood is applied to it and what the blood represents then has that effect on the thing it's applied to and we need that blood applied to us 
When we repent and believe in Christ, when we first see him as beautiful, when we see him as desirable and we put our faith in him, that blood uh, was applied. And that's wonderful. You, you can know that if you're a Christian. The blood of Christ was applied to you. It was represented in your baptism. Now, we use water in baptism, but um, the Bible's clear that the baptism, um, from one perspective, is the blood of Christ being applied to you. Now, it's just water when we use it, but it, there's one part of it that definitely represents the blood of Christ. And you had that when you believed. When you believed in Christ, the effects of the cross that we saw this morning, though it was so long ago, when you believed in your lifetime now, the effects of that cross were at a certain point by God, the Holy Spirit, applied to you. When you were born again, that blood was applied, and you went from being guilty to not guilty. You went from being a sin-bearer and a guilt-bearer and a wrath-bearer to none of these things. You're still a sinner, but you are not bearing the weight and wrath and guilt of that sin. You are not. It was upon Christ. And because he did it, the mark that he did it for you is that the blood is put on you. Now, you don't have actual blood put on you, but you are baptized into his name. You are given his name. You are called a Christian. You have his name upon you. You belong to him. And the cross has been applied to you. What a wonderful thing. We kind of listen to these things and say, well, interesting part of systematic theology, and I see how these link together. Um, What must I say to you for you to see the glory of the fact that everything wrong you've ever done is, is you, you are not viable for it and that the hell and these things you deserve it's never going to come anywhere near you ever because someone else who lived long before you loved you you can't even get a senator to care about you in that way even if you know them in some way and go to their office and speak to them and plead with them. This person lived 2,000 years ago, and he did all of this for the church, yes, but for you. He did that for you. How wonderful that is. In a lonely, fallen world where there are so many complications... So much sin. So much goes wrong. And we are hemmed in by it all and become distressed. But this thing here shows you that no matter what happens, and no matter what anyone does or what anyone says, that the truth about you, at least, is that the Son of God has dealt with your sin. And you are not responsible in that sense for it. You do not have to suffer in that sense for it. You are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. You are forgiven 
And your conscience in that sense is free. And you keep it free and keep it clean. That blood is the way we come in. And it legally makes us right. That's the initial part of it. But there's a continual part of it too. And this is something that sometimes we struggle to think about. I've had to try and figure this out at various points. That um, that Christ's atonement was a once-for-all thing that was applied to you. So how does it, how does that affect us then when we sin? How, do do we have to go for more forgiveness? Some people say that they say I don't have to ask forgiveness because Christ has forgiven it all, or I I don't have to put this thing right because Christ has forgiven my sins. Or, I don't need to repent of this or make a big deal about it, because Christ has forgiven it all at the beginning anyway. But it doesn't work like that. Christ did die and make you legally justified before God. You, you have a justification in the law room and courtroom of God that can't be changed. But you still do things now that incur a guilt. It's not... A guilt that will bring wrath in that sense. It's not a guilt that will bring you before the judge to be finally punished. But there is still a guilt. It's maybe the best way to think about it is that before we were in Christ, we could be pulled before the governor for for breaking the law. And all our breaches of the law. We'd be pulled before the governor or the state judge. And he could say to us, look at, look at this sheet of charges I have against you. In the ten years you've lived in this state, the, there, are, there are this hundred and twenty things that you have done, and you, you must make retribution for all of these. That's the position we were in before we came to Christ. When we came to Christ, all of that was blotted out, and paid for, and restored, and we promised then to live for Christ. What we have now is more a relationship between a child and a father. When, when a child wrongs his father, his father doesn't take him to the state judge. When we wrong in, within a family, we're not necessarily breaking any state laws, but we are still capable of wronging and carrying guilt for that wrong. And that's what it's like in our relationship to God. We will not stand before the tribunal in that sense and be punished. But God, as our Father, rather than as merely our judge, as our Father, He sees wrong that is done in the church, in our own lives, these things we do. He sees it, and He knows it must be corrected. And even though He will not ultimately punish in that sense, the child is still guilty for what they've done. And any father will say, well... You need, to, you need to speak to your sister and tell her you're sorry for what you did. And the child could say, but I'm not liable for, I can't be arrested for this. And the father will say, that doesn't matter. When you live under, under my roof, you're going to be reconciled to your sister. That's what it's like in Christ. And that means the blood is still effective. It was once for all, but it's not way back there in a treasure chest somewhere packed away. The blood is active and alive. This fountain is open, Zechariah says. 
for sin and uncleanness. It's always open. And when the Christian sins, and God says, repent and ask forgiveness, it's very hard to ask for forgiveness when you're just seeing God in his law. Please don't crush me. Please forgive me. Why? When we're missing that thing in our mind and heart that sees a fountain with blood coming out of it. Now when you look at God and a fountain of blood, then you can, you can go for forgiveness. You don't have to hesitate. Because every time you see that fountain, it, why was it opened? Was it open for holy people to march around it? Was it open for people to come and examine it and test it? No, it's opened for sin. So, when a Christian sins, they go to the fountain. They don't need to wait 40 days of reformation to go to the fountain. They go now. We are still works-based when we think, I'll wait a week before I go to the fountain. I'll build up some rapport with God again before I go to the fountain. We're missing the point of grace and the power of this blood. This blood is greater than our sin. This blood is for sin. There's no point us pretending or trying to hide our sin from God. The whole reason that there is a fountain from God is because it's already out of the open that we will all sin. So when you sin, and you're made aware that you sin, go to the fountain. Once for all at the beginning, when you're brought into Christ, the blood is put on you. And you are set apart, and you are His, and you are justified. But you will sin again. And you can go, how relieving and how wonderful for there to be this fountain. And this fountain doesn't come from the ground. Or just a throne room or theology textbook. This fountain comes from a person. From the side of a person who is your friend and king and who loves you. Why wouldn't we go there? We all fall into this. How can we not go when we see a Christ with blood pouring from him for sin that he opened for us? John himself says it. You know the famous verse. If any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There it is again. Blood and water. He is he will forgive our sins, blood, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But see the point there. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. John saw this and it defined the way he approached God for the rest of his life. He is faithful. We know God's faithful, but we don't think he's just in that sense. 
we think it's kind of unjust for us to sneak into the throne room of God and, and go to him with something very ugly and say, please forgive this, because we know within that wrong should not be forgiven. We don't forgive ourselves. People don't forgive each other. We're constantly unwilling to forgive. And we are, leg- we are legalistic. We are works-based. And we, we think that in going to ask God for forgiveness, we're kind of sneaking in to his temple in the middle of the night and whispering into his ear when everyone else is sleeping, please forgive me. That's not what it's like. He is just to forgive sin. You can go into his throne room when he's there in all of his glory and holiness with the advocate next to him, his son, who died for us and we can confess our sins freely and clearly and he will forgive them there and then. And everyone else might hold them against us for the rest of our lives but that isn't the point. He will forgive them. That's Christianity. Without that, there is no Christianity. We can pretend about forgiveness and grace. But if we, if we don't have that, we have nothing. If we can't have our sins forgiven, we can. There is a fountain. So go in love to your Father and to the Advocate Jesus Christ at the beginning of your Christian life, but throughout your Christian life. Because this fountain is powerful. That's the blood that forgives sin. But there's also the water that cleanses it. It is good to start with the forgiveness and have them put right and have them blotted out. David, David had another man's wife in his palace. And when he thought he was going to be found out, he tried to trick her husband into getting drunk and having relations with the wife so that it would look like it wasn't his child. And when that didn't work, he sent the man into battle at an area of the city wall where he knew it was likely that the man would be killed. He commanded someone, set Uriah at the area of the city which is fiercest. And then when Uriah died, David stood at his funeral, one of his generals, and pretended to, to cry and that Uriah was one of the great men and I'm so sorry that this happened to him. He died fighting for Israel and all the while inside, David knew what he had done. And he went nine months not confessing it. It wasn't until the baby was born and the baby was in jeopardy that the truth came to light and Nathan came to him and said, Thou art the man. Thou art the man. What did David do? He would be removed from the ministry today, rightly so. I mean, how can you come back from that in some sense? But he retained his kingship, not without price. The rest of his life was very, very hard. Um, What did David do? He wrote Psalm 51. All my iniquities blot out. My sin hide from thy view. Against thee only have I sinned, Lord, and in thy sight done this evil. 
amazing the fountain can deal with it legally. Even David's situation can be dealt with by the blood. But then he asks something else. Don't just forgive me, but cleanse me. Create a new heart in me, and wash thou me, and I shall be whiter than the snow. What John saw here. Blood and water coming out of Christ. Forgiveness, but cleansing. The legal problem of sin, but then the contamination problem. For God can objectively do something with our sin, but the contamination is very real. We actually have a disease. Some of you either have or know someone that's had very serious physical diseases. And they are merciless. And they are contaminants. They are destructive. We have a moral one. And it's real. The contamination of sin is not a concept. It's real. Sin contaminates us. It multiplies in cells. And it spreads. And it needs washed. And when we come to Christ, just as we were covered in the blood to deal with the guilt of the sin, we were also changed and washed to come. When we become Christians, we're not just accepting a new set of truths in our mind. There is a radical change in the heart of a real conversion and a real regeneration. Paul says to Titus, you were washed with the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. When he comes in, the Spirit comes like water. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus. And when the Spirit comes, he's like a cleansing water in the heart of a lost, filthy sinner. And that initial conversion actually does clean a lot. It cleans a lot. A lot of the filthy thoughts and words and selfishness and things we're living for and worldliness, all these things, a lot of it gets cleansed out. This idea that someone becomes a Christian and there's no real change, is, it's completely unbiblical and therefore unreal. And we shouldn't accept such a, a truth. It just it isn't like that. You are a new creation, Paul says. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have become new. That's what the water of the Spirit does. When he comes into our lives, the blood forgives, but the water that works with it sanctifies and sets apart a person for holy use and washes an initial washing of the heart. Jesus said that. Peter wouldn't allow his feet to be washed. And Christ said, if I don't wash you, we're not together. Peter says, wash all of me. And Jesus said, no, just the feet. You have already been bathed, Peter. Peter was bathed. Peter had a lot of problems, but he was no Judas. Peter had problems, but he was no Pharisee. Peter had problems, but he was no Herod. Peter had sins, but they were Christian sins. Peter had been bathed. When he heard John the Baptist preach, and it enlivened him to hope for a Messiah, Peter's entire life became about God, and he 
he left his wife and children in Capernaum and he went on a three year tour with Christ. He gave it all up because his heart had been washed. He was bathed. We were bathed. Remember that. And when you're interacting with other Christians, remember that principle. When we come in, there is blood going on and water going on. When someone comes into the kingdom, they are legally put right, but they are washed and set apart, and they must live like they've been set apart. We have been bathed. But like Peter, and like us all, although we were bathed at the beginning, there is a need for continual washing. For feet washing. Because we pick up contamination. Legally right. Washed at the beginning. But there remains, our confession says, an inward corruption. Which may for a time prevail, it says. There is an inward corruption. The original sin is still working in our souls. And God in his wisdom, he, he leaves it there in the Christian's heart for a hundred reasons that we can't spend time on right now. But he leaves it there, and it needs washed. And Christ is the washer. This fountain that we go to, and that God has swung open the door of his temple so that we can come to this fountain, it is not only to say, please forgive my sin, but we can ask, wash my sin. Wash my heart and make me clean. Make me clean. And the fountain is coming from Christ, who is pure and holy and who washes sin. How are you, Christian? Is your heart being washed? Is it really? Because we cannot be living before our Savior as his sanctifying influence is flooding out of him and somehow it's not hitting us. Is your heart being washed? Christ washes his people. I will make you clean. He says. So you can come to the Lord and ask for that cleansing. A leper came to Christ and he said, What do you want me to do for you, Lord? If you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. Do you hear that? If you are not clean, it is not because Jesus is not willing or that the fountain isn't there. He specializes in this and he loves to do it for those who love him. He loves to cleanse his people. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are wonderful things. So we have blood when we come in, we have to continually go to that fountain of blood. And we are washed when we come in, in the heart. We are given a new heart, but we need to continually go for that washing. This fountain is so powerful 
that no matter what guilt or stain is brought to it, it will be cleansed. And we forget that as individuals and when we look at others and judge others too. And sometimes we need to judge others. Christ didn't say don't never judge anyone. We always have to make judgments. But we have to be careful that they're biblical judgments. This fountain will cleanse any sin. If there is repentance, humility and contrition, if it's real and it's because the person needs and loves Christ, it doesn't matter what they've done. Tell them to go there to that fountain and be confident that you can go there to that fountain too. It's a powerful fountain. The Lord tells us, as we close, let me tell you, the ways he utilizes this fountain in your life so that you know where to find it. He does it by the word. Ephesians 5 that he might sanctify her by the washing of the water of the word. The word is a cleansing agent. It's like a hose. That you, you go to your car with the hose. And very quickly the car looks very different. The word is like that. It cleans very quickly. It cleans the mind and the thoughts. It redirects the affections and the thoughts. He does it by prayer that we need to pray and to be open with the Lord and ask for grace and ask that no sin would reign over us and to have the grace of our souls exercised. He does it by all the means of grace. The Lord's Supper, the communion of the saints, even fellowship is used by God as one of the hose pipes through which this fountain sends some of its sanctifying influence. Because to be around other Christians, as they speak about the Lord, and that's what fellowship is, if there's no conversation about the Lord, it's not really fellowship. If we are doing each other good, we will speak about the Lord. You may be very weak and I don't know. And something I say that clearly turns you back to the Lord is a a huge influence on you. I may be very weak and you have no idea that I am. And I may be speaking with you. And if you say something great about the Lord, if you say something from your own experience about the Lord and what he's done for you and that he hasn't forsaken you, you can say that in my hearing and it becomes a sanctifying influence upon me, an encouragement. The word and prayer the means of grace and communion and fellowship together are all ways through which Christ strengthens us and brings us to this fountain. The psalm that we're about to sing says this, Lord, who could stand if you should mark iniquity but yet with thee forgiveness is that feared thou mayest be we have
reoccurring sin problems. And we have to make sure that we are real in our lives and in our church. We have to make sure that we are gospel people. This place is for people to come and to hear about sin and to hear about how it's dealt with and to be restored from it. And we all ought to be doing that and encouraging it and maintaining it in one another. That's what this place is for. This place is a place that promotes and reveals and augments a fountain in the gospel. The water and the blood flow in the meeting of the church. We, we have to make sure that, that we see the reality and the danger of this. We can discourage each other. We can pull one another away from the Lord. We can push the focus onto things that are not central. We can give the impression that we think that the gospel is about God giving us our best lives now and giving us all the worldly things that we want. That is not the gospel. The gospel is for people who are sick of their sin. And they want rid of it. And they want to know that you're next to them in the pew and that you want rid of it too. We all want rid of this. And praise God that there is a fountain by which we can be utterly rid of this. May God bless his word to us.